You're listening to The Razor's Edge. The Razor's Edge is an investing podcast. Your hosts are Akram's Razor, an investor and trader with decades of experience in markets, and me, Daniel Schwarzman, who has been focused on the market as a career for the past decade. We take investing ideas or themes we're interested in and break them down, or we speak with expert guests to get a wider understanding of a given topic. To get episodes of The Razor's Edge, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get podcasts. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you have a chance, or share this show with a friend. You can also check out our work on Seeking Alpha under our respective names, or reach us on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman or at Akram's Razor. Our standard disclaimer and disclosure. The Razor's Edge is a Shortman Studios production. The views discussed belong to either Akram or me, respectively, or to our guests when we have them. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. We'll disclose any positions in any stocks discussed at the end of the podcast or during our introduction to the given episode. So, the Fed meeting came and went. As you probably know, the Federal Reserve shifted their tone mildly with respect to inflation, but there were no real policy adjustments. You've probably also noticed the up-and-down market reaction to the news so far. And while the pendulum is swinging back as I record this intro on Monday afternoon, it does seem like growth stocks and SaaS specifically have been winners. So on today's Razor's Edge, Akram and I follow up on last week's episode about the Fed, talking about their decision and the market and media reaction. We then move over to the SaaS sector, our regular field. We break down three companies in detail. Zoom, a bellwether, PagerDuty, one of our favorite topics, and Workday, subject of a recent Akram pitch. If you want to jump to the SaaS section, it's about 33 minutes in. We finish off with thoughts about the growth hangover that might plague COVID winners generally. Disclosures I'm long PagerDuty and Thor Industries as of this recording. Akram is long Twitter. We recorded this on Thursday, the 17th. And I'm recording the intro on the 21st. Here we go. Akram, we are talking on Thursday after the Fed meeting, which we covered last week. And so we'll talk about that. And then I also wanted to kind of get over to SAS with a couple names, old and new, to hit as examples of what's going on in SAS more generally. But what did you think of the Fed meeting? What did you think of the meeting the minutes the or not the minutes but the press release and then the what did you think press conference that's that's becoming the go-to uh i don't know i think it was pretty close to where they they made some noise towards yeah we see what's going on we're paying attention but we're still you know what they they bumped their forecast for inflation for this year some of the dots got moved forward into 2023 or whatever, but I guess I would say they gave themselves room that if things get better or worse, depending on how you look at it, if the economy picks up faster or if inflation seems more persistent, they've opened the door a little bit more to start acting, but not a very surprising shift. The fact that the markets, the Russell is getting hammered today, not really sure. I, I guess that's a little bit more bank heavy and junk heavy. But yeah, I, I'm not really sure. The market reaction doesn't seem huge either way. And 
the Fed's move is probably what they had to do. The minimum. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, like, what are they going to come out and, and just be like, hey, we're not aware of anything? <laughs> it's, it's almost become farcical when, you know, people believe that there's a room of central bankers that has any clue what the hell's going on. And the same people, you know, believe that we need to be in a decentralized currency world. <laughs> the same people believe that, uh, you know, the economy will be just fine in, in, in either case. So, you know, the economy is what it is, right? It's an organism. I think it's complex. I don't think that there's like the idea of a shitty or a great economy. You know, I think it's always in the eye of the beholder, to tell you the truth. But I mean, yeah, if you look at the Fed meeting, there was a lot of rhetoric that was starting beforehand about, let's say, more explicitly acknowledging, explicitly acknowledging, you know, inflation risks. Kaplan had some comments. We talked about that. I mean, you know what I would have liked? I would have liked them to actually be proactively, uh, you know, willing to do something to kind of, to kind of signal that, hey, we're just as likely, we don't really, we're not here to inflate asset prices. So the fact that the asset prices seem to be the, uh, the unintended co- consequence beneficiary of, of every single economic shock is, is, is the name of the game, right? I mean, like, well, I don't think that there's any other way of, uh, of looking at it because they talk about what's transitory and they talk about certain things that can be unintended consequences. But I think you've got the, like, the standard, you know, I mean, there's a bunch of people on on the FOMC, it's not just a one-man show. We know what he's, ever since the end of 2018 and early 19, he's figured out that it's much easier to, to be the dove, the champion of dove, dovism publicly. So, yeah, they give you uh, what you would expect them, right? You, got, you went from four to seven on the dot plot, which is amazing that we, we focus on these things. But, you know, it's the survey like what do you like i mean with what's happened in the last several months like did you did we not expect three more guys to be like yeah you know what there, there may be some inflation <laughs> and it may, it may stay around a little bit longer than we expect than we would like yeah i think the media the media reaction has been different from the market reaction i think the media that i've seen financial media and i'm worked in media i'm generally not i'm not like a, oh the media is stupid guy but i think the media reaction has been oh the the fed sounded more hawkish and the tone was more hawkish and i think in so much as you can surmise a market reaction i think the market's reaction has been no that they were pricing in a more hawkish tone in terms of again like i said the 10 year i think is down banks and financials have been hit pretty hard today we'll get into growth stocks but growth stocks are doing well meme stocks to your to our last week topic are i'm looking at amc and it's up 15 percent. which whatever but yeah i i think it's the i think sometimes people look at the fed and they look at the if they attribute they attribute some power to them and then they say like the market they should be looking at all these things it, you know i think that was we talked about does the fed feel like they're going to take the reins as far as curbing speculation some people also say, well, the Fed should be giving us setting the interest rate at a point where I can get some return without being forced to go chasing for it, which 
I understand the logic, but again, it's I'm not sure the Fed defines their role that way. And I'm not sure they would have to kind of back into that. And so that's where if they're just focused on we want employment to get to where it is and we wanted some inflation and we're willing to risk a little bit more now, we think it'll calm down. It's interesting. Commodities, I feel like, has come off today and the dollar has been up. So there's, you know, the market market reaction is hard to tell. But I mean, the if, if we were to sum this up. Right. Like their the message communicated from by them was that you will get your your first rate hike earlier than than we had been conditioning you to expect throughout, let's call it the the peaks of COVID. I mean, I think that there's a bit of a mindset out there that it's like, you know, COVID really wasn't that bad. Or I mean, it was pretty bad for some businesses. Let's call it the the mom and shop variety of certain things. Like you'll get people who you know, get really worked up if you say it wasn't that bad. But I mean, in effect, from that standpoint, like you were compensated to close your business down. Okay. And like, if your, you know, hardware store wasn't cutting it as an alternative to Home Depot, <laughs> and uh, a pandemic allowed you to, to walk away with some lump sum cash flow exit, I can't necessarily look at that as a complete disaster. So, Outside of that, we know that there's a lot of businesses that COVID was great for. So it kind of, you know, it boosted, it boosted demand. There's not much else to say. People couldn't eat out. It was great for food delivery. It was great for the restaurants that were able to stay open. It was great for the Home Depots, Targets, Walmarts. Uh, it was fantastic for the Amazons. It was great for the cloud stocks. It was great for everything digital. It was good if you were in streaming. Right. I mean, so on and so forth. Turned out it was even better if you were a movie theater operator. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, that actually shutting down your business was, uh, you know, better for your stock price. But I mean, there's a lot of that that, was, that that went on. We know it was fantastic for semiconductors. Uh, and I mean, you know, it's an endless long list. It was great for EVs and blah, 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 blah. Right. So, like, crisis, the, the concept of it have, having been, a crisis, an economic shock. It was not a demand shock, right? It was a demand shock for one area that moved over to another area immediately. And it turned into a demand boost. So like there's like that element of COVID. When you think about like the, let's call it the economic recession, the great recession, like you had beneficiaries who benefited from cost savings, right? Like I canceled my cable bill and I switched to Netflix or I outsourced my infrastructure to AWS before that turned into, you know, AWS allows me to skip, you know, capital intensive startup costs and so on and so forth. But like, for the most part, like there was a period of contracted consumer spending and like that just never happened under COVID. Right. So like, it's impossible for them to make this argument in an environment where like we do measure things on a nominal level, right. That, Personal income went up the most it's ever gone up since I started keeping the data. And household savings got a huge boost and so on and so forth. So, like, it's really hard to parse that, like, they've got these, like, emergency crisis things in place because, well, I mean, it's not a crisis dynamic. So, like, the fact that they're coming out and communicating, I mean, I get the, the idea that there's a lot of stuff that we, as we head into 2022, 
that's going to run itself off. So they don't want to be reacting to a used car market that's overheated because you know the, the supply of new cars went to fucking zilch. And the same thing with, I mean, housing, there's, you know, there's bull market factors in housing, right? Like, I mean, like, you know, I see stuff on, on FinTwit where it's like, I kind of believe that the, the housing market is entering kind of a bull cycle. And I'm like, you know what? I mean, there's underpinnings to make that argument that like your household formation is picking up relative to the last decade, right? But if I'm going to have that conversation with you, Daniel, and I'm going to be like, look, the housing market has has strength, like we have to separate the price element from it, right? Because like, if I tell you that the housing market is going to be strong for a few years, but the, the price of a home appreciated 70% year over year from what you could have sold it for before the pandemic to what you can sell it for now, because there's like 19 buyers that want to move to an area, set aside the financial buyers. It's kind of irrelevant, you and me having this conversation about the long-term fundamentals without being like, what's in the price? You know, what percentage, like what move, what, what move in the price is like a dislocation and what move in that price like is going to come off as this dislocation settles itself out, right? Like as buyers go on strike to a certain degree till things cool down and liquidity, relatively speaking, you know, comes out of the market to, to, to some let's call it at some marginal level. So I think these are the things that like the Fed is like, you know, they know that these things are going to work in their favor because just like, that's just supply will solve itself out. Now, does that justify the fact that like, they're not willing to be like, hey, we're taking uh, our foot off the gas and we're going to, you know, we're going to, we're going to taper. I think, no, I think that like, at some point you have to basically be like, look, this was, we did too much too fast and uh, we kept it on for way too long. I mean, I think you could argue we got like people got well past where COVID was as far as a crisis by like August of last year. Mentally, I mean, you did go through another phase that was worth and like uh, in the second lockdown in terms of like driving you stir crazy, but it economically wasn't worse. Well, I think there was there's different levels, right? There's the the health crisis, there is the economic crisis, and there's the market mood. And the market mood, you know, we have a that's what the chart is for. You can see that basically by June the market was, or you you know maybe it went a little bit longer. I think let's say in small caps took you to October, but things were pretty copacetic in the market pretty quickly. And that's what's interesting about the Fed's position is that the Fed's audience, the people who think about it most are market oriented, whether they're in government, whether they're in the markets, whether they're running businesses, whatever. And yeah, the market is the part. part. I, mean, I don't think people from, the, from like a market standpoint, the health prices really did not resonate with many people. You know, like, I mean, I'm like, I look at my feet on Twitter and it's almost comical. There's a bunch of people on my feed and I noticed like one guy who was talking about how he was going back to the gym and he was going into Equinox and like literally there was like two VCs immediately cracking a joke to him on like, you know, you're still going to have to wear a mask there because it's in California. Like, I don't think these people, <laughs> you know, sorry, the expression these people is 
no but i uh, i i think generalization you're... but like like since like the like it was it was never that bad uh they really like most people tied to the, the financial economy really didn't give didn't really give a shit about it and uh as it tapered off like it's really just been more of a focus in the financial world about like let's call it freedoms freedom of speech freedom of expression uh like it's been a focus of politics for most of these people particularly in the venture capital and like you know your portfolio couldn't have done better right like there could have been nothing that could have been conceived to boost the value of anything on your books than a pandemic if you are venture capitalist investing in tech right yeah and there's some irony right? like you, you you'll probably never have a better year across all your holdings than this year like you just look at them you marked everything up notably because you got both like this like kind of digital accelerant boost and you got like the overall inflationary boost. So like, the, like, that's what I'm saying. Like this whole idea of a health crisis, like I never noticed much of that in, in, in my Twitter feed based on the people that I follow. Like it just like it, like there was never really a COVID health crisis. So like, yeah, like once you got past the, uh, it was like amazing. It's unbelievable how fast these companies are growing at scale. It's like, you know, like a Seinfeld episode. I can't believe how fast these companies are growing at scale. Really, George? <laughs> Tell me about it. Amazon.com is compounding at 40%. Who would have thought that this could keep going? I've just started re-watching Seinfeld recently. Or not re I never actually watched the show straight through. And so now I'm uh, catching up on the gaps in my pop culture knowledge but uh i think so one thing i thought was interesting there was what you said about the house home building for example or houses housing costs and i i've started by the way to like nose around at home builders it's a sector that i don't understand well and if anybody's listening and has primers on how to learn about home builders i'm all ears or if you've got them but the point about the pricing is interesting because one of the, when we were in that initial COVID period in Zoom, which we'll get to, and it jumps up from sixty to one hundred twenty, and then it gets up to two forty or you know two hundred, and then it just kind of keeps climbing. And of course, that's the power of software is that there is no supply constraint really. I mean, Zoom had its hiccups, and we talked about it over the time security or whatever, but they did, they really scaled nicely, right? And so that's. It's interesting to be on the other side of that and real economy, or again, not to say that the online economy is not real, but these physical goods, they are harder to scale. And some of those supply chain shortages are affecting the technological world. But it is interesting when you're talking about because of the shortages going around, I mean, I know lumber has calmed down quite a bit, but the shortages that are bottlenecking in housing or in all parts of the market, RVs, anywhere you go, it does create this sort of, let's see what happens when we get through this. I, I at that point about like, even if the, you're going to sell a ton of houses, the revenue might be different because prices one would hope if you're a buyer are going to calm down a little bit in the next 12 to 18 months. Yeah. So like they're going to calm down, but I still think it's a bull market in housing. 
at which point, like, that's where the Fed does a challenge because that's where the transitory is a transitory, particularly if, like, you're looking at housing affordability. It's a bull market, essentially speaking, in household formation. So they're like, they're going to get relief to the extent that, like, you reshuffled the deck under COVID and people have, you know, people have moved, the migratory patterns cool off, right? And who's remote, who's not remote, these things, I think, you know, like that's where you're going to get like the, it's not 15 buyers per home. And then that's where the financial buyers start to be like, hey, well, you know what? Maybe like I shouldn't be paying these prices and that cools off price. But I still think that there's an underlying demand because you are underinvested, you know, for a decade since the financial crisis. So I think that works out. I think you always have, I mean, I was talking to a friend who put his house in the market in Manhattan, apartment on the Upper East Side. And it's just like, you know, too, like the, the, like what's happened in the last two months has been remarkable. It's like, it's like, it just like, it went from like a horrible market to right back to where normal. <laughs> it's like it's, it's back to New York, New York as usual. It's like people all over the world still want to buy real estate here. Yeah. So like these, I think these elements factor into like, you know, going back to my point, like, you know, it wouldn't have hurt for them to just taper. Like this is idea where they don't want to cause it. Like the whole, there's this idea that, that the goal of the central bank is to always communicate, like to cause stability. But like, if you're offsetting like immediately, so aggressively in nominal terms, every downward shock in, in, in financial markets, you're not really causing stability. You're, you're ceasing to financial markets function. So like you literally have to, you're like, you're going to have to cause a taper tantrum. Like it's just going to have to happen. So like to sit there and be like, Hey, if we're really, really good at communicating that this is not going to end for several years, that like the market will basically figure that out and we'll get kind of a smooth, slow, tra- that's not what happened. So like that's, it's been proven that it doesn't play itself out that way. So they're going to get to a point in the fall where I think that like, you know, there, there's, they're going to be expected to start tapering off certain things. And you're going to have slack developing in certain areas where people are going to be like, no, now's not the time to taper. We have a bit of a COVID hangover in these sectors. And then maybe you get into, you know, early 2022, or let's call it spring of 2022. And you're talking about like maintaining accommodation and like you're pushing out your expectations. But like you could still have a housing market that's very strong, but like some other areas, some other pockets of the economy that start to exhibit weakness, right? So like. It's this type of, this is where I I mean, you know, I differ in thinking that in this particular unique instance, it probably would have benefited them to cool off certain things because we know a bunch of stuff is transitory and then there's a bunch of stuff that's not. I mean, that's just the nature of an economy. Yeah, which is where wasn't a huge surprise where we ended up and... Like, if you look at the reaction in the market the last 48 hours, both the knee-jerk reaction, which was like, hey, let's sell some stuff, to like today, let's buy everything that's like low interest rate sensitive. I mean, like, you know, let's call it the Kathy Wood dynamic of like, okay, well, I mean, it's like, we're not getting any near-term changes in in rates. So yeah, like you kind of got to like, hey, we're kind of aware of this. It maybe happened in 2022. We're confident in the transitory nature. And that's kind of cooled off some stuff on the commodity side which then like led to some people being willing to recalibrate towards these growth stocks, for example. But this isn't exactly unusual. I've, I've kind of been in the camp 
that the summer after the, like the sell-off you had between like, let's say February and April end of COVID, right. Is a conducive, like people don't know what else to buy. What else, you know, like you don't have people, like I was listening to some really good pitches on, on some value names. And I was like, damn, this guy did some really good work on one. Uh, one was the, uh, in some space, special situations. He did, uh, he pitched the, what's it called? Uh, duty free. The airport shops. Hudson yeah. or Hudson or some do free do free do free which right. I haven't looked at in a while and he pitched another name there's another guy who made a couple of good pitches just really logical stuff and I was like yeah but like nine out of ten people just want to you know want to want to know when AMD is going to hit a hundred and Amazon's going to hit four thousand like that's literally that's the, that's the market you're in right or like you know when they can make fifty percent buying the dip in in Peloton and Zoom. And I mean, like, that's kind of like what you've seen, you know, we, we joked about it a couple of podcasts ago, or it was like, you know, Zoom at like 280. There was, there's been multiple fundamental, like buy the dip in Zoom, Zoom calls by, by, like, that I've seen on FinTwit. And like, none of them have brought anything new to the table. The stock got down to, let's say about 280. Uh, and we joked, I was like, hey, I want to buy some Zoom here. Like, this is when you finally feel like it's really, really, really oversold for a trade. Before you know it now, it's like, what? It's 370. We had that like that little window, you know, right in the first week of May where everything kind of bottomed out and like the market flipped, you know, like they dumped Home Depot and uh, Lowe's and those names. And you went into these growth stocks and then you went into meme stock too and the short covering rally in the, in the Russell that, that, that went strong for a little while. But when you look at these names, you're really not generating much from an alpha standpoint in them. They move all together. So like, when I read like a nice pitch on like, hey, here's why I want to buy Zoom. I'm like, well, can you bring something new to the table and tell me like how this business is going to look in 2020, 2022 to 2023? Nobody seems to be have like a strong, you know, view on any of that. I just get a bunch of people are like, it's growing at this rate and it's trading at this EV to sales multiple times this year. And I'm like, all right, yeah, but what about next year? And then the stock will go up 20% and be like, look, I made a great call. I'm like, yeah, but then like, you know, Twilio bounced as well. And so did PagerDuty. So did DocuSign and Fastly and every other fucking name, you know? So it's when you get into these, like, you know, what do you, like, what's the alpha being generated in a basket of these, like, 40, 50 names? It's like, what? There's like a 5% delta to 10% between, like, the good one or the bad one where you pick them up on a pocket. It's a flow trade. I mean, it's interesting if you can, like, I mean, you know, I, I made the argument that the 2000 market is a great analog, even though it's very hard to make an, an argument around anything being analog to COVID because you had such a wild swing, but Y2K did generate a lot of boost. And you had like some stuff that was one off on top of a secularly bullish cycle. And I mean, it was like, people think the market peaked in March of 2000 and it was just over, but that's not how it played out. The market peaked in March of 2000 for the most speculative stuff. But like, if you were in Cisco, you were down like 10% in September on September 1 of 2000 off your highs. And I mean, you know, that had been, you know, that had been a fantastic performer. It wasn't really until September till the end of the year that like, once you started to actually genuinely see signs that the growth rate that was being sustained for the last 18 months was cooling off, that the stocks actually took a nosedive. 
there was volatility and then there's going to be volatility in all kinds of names of like one that you appreciate as quickly as those names have appreciated. And that's kind of, you know, the comparison you have today with this market. But I mean, is it really going to be as plain vanilla of, as, of waiting for things to slow down? Like I was, I was having this conversation with Justin the other day and we were talking about Amazon and I was just like, look, dude, I mean, it's not a question of whether or not it's a good business. It's like people are complaining that the stock has been flat for eight months. So yeah, I mean, the performance of Amazon and, and AMD is another name that I was listening to a couple of guys talk about the other day because it's been flat for a while. And the general view is like, when is AMD going to break out? You know, the way NVIDIA has recently. And it's like, look, I mean, if you look at it on a five-year basis, AMD's best performing stock of any of these names, right? I mean, it's, it's some better than Tesla, it's some better than NVIDIA. I mean, it's obviously some better than NVIDIA, but I mean, the stock has literally gone from $2 to $80 since early 2016. I mean, I bought it at like 350, you know, after it was up 50% in a day. And, you know, I, I sold it in the teens and I thought I was a genius. So like, yeah, you got a lot of this, like, you've got a lot of this conditioning in this market, which I think is interesting is that people will trade what they know. And like, it, it can be almost as simple as like, you've got a bunch of people who like, they're not going to go names like, for example, what we were just talking about, Dumfrey. They're not thinking, hey, travel retail. I can buy it at like, you know, 7% yield and so and so and so on and so forth. And this worked out this way. They're just like looking at, look, Zoom was down another 10%. It's this much off its highs. Amazon's been flat. It's going to break out soon. It's one of these things where like, you haven't shifted anything about the assumptions for the underlying demand in the businesses. Like we were joking about Amazon. I was like, look, this thing, like this thing's growing 40%, quarter of a quarter. I'm like, well, yeah. So there's this argument around uh, like Amazon going mid-teens going into COVID. And that it was getting crap then. And like, you know, businesses at this scale, right, are going to hit any growth wall. Which I think is is kind of like a, a huge risk in everything because there is a category of investors that are just kind of like, you know, they're rotating around this basket of names. And like I said, they're not going to wake up and start trading Home Depot instead of Amazon. They're not looking for, even though it's performed well, they're not looking to buy Oracle, for example, or Cisco, right? Versus Zoom. So they're looking to trade these names that they've gotten kind of familiar with. And like, I don't think you've had, I don't think you've had that, that bubbly burst type of shock that forces people to reevaluate yet what they're trading, which is why I was like, I was drawing that the, the analog to the 2000 market in the sense that like, even after you took that first hit, you know, there was enough of a rebound and strength throughout the summer that like a good level of complacency developed. Like someone who's, if, if you 5X on a name and you take a 50% hit, it's not really, a shock to you if you've done it in a year, right? And if the, if the name rebounds, you know, to only being 20% off its high or 10% off its high or 15% off its high, it's like you barely feel it. And it's then, it's in that moment where like, if something were to change and you find yourself in like, you know, a protracted down period versus like right now, flat feels really bad for a while. And like, that's what you've seen from, from like the Amazon shareholder 
to the Apple shareholder. And that's why I think a lot of them prefer trading these uh, the SaaS names with like much more notable volatility, right? I can go in and out and make 10%. I mean, like, and forget the, like the, the crazier stuff where like you're seeing 100% swings in and out of like, you know, if you're trading microvision or skills or FUBU or these names, it's a much more elevated degree of volatility. And that's what these traders are used to. And this is like human behavior. So let's shift to SaaS because what I'm curious about is there are so many of those names are in this bucket. And we talked about the Fed. The response to the Fed so far has been for by growth. And again, who knows how long that will stick. But a name like Zoom, which you talked about, bottomed around 280. And I, I looked at it, and I don't know if this is pre-market or live prices, but Zoom's interesting because it did have such prodigious revenue growth. Its EV revenues since January 2020 uh, on a trailing basis, not a forward basis, has actually dropped. So you could say they've seen a tiny bit of multiple compression. It's trivial. It's a 6 or 7% yeah, so drop. The argument is they're growing into their multiple, and this argument is being made on some of these names where it's like, see, it's not that bad. They're growing into the multiple. They were not that expensive. But I mean, in the Zoom case, one, when you, when you pay for a stock at these levels, you better grow into your multiple. That's the goal. I mean, that's essentially how you compound. And if you want to look at the Salesforce example and factor in stock dilution, like you're, you're very rarely ever trading over eight to 10 times sales throughout the entire run it's had to where it is. And then that's with acquisitions and so on and so forth. But if you look at SaaS, it, like in the Zoom example, it was laid out that on a 2020 basis, fiscal year 2021, sorry, uh, fiscal year 2022, stock is cheap because the stock has come down, but like they've grown so fast, like you're actually now paying a lower multiple for Zoom's growth than you were pre-COVID. Now, here's the thing. How much of its market did Zoom penetrate in that window, number one? <laughs> and how well did they do, you know, from a margin standpoint in that time period, right? So, like, usually with these names, it's like I'm paying a high sales multiple, but eventually, you know, on an EBITDA basis, I can start to value the stock because margins are going to steadily expand. I mean, in this period where we're very focused on onboarding and winning new customers, so I'm paying a high revenue multiple, I'm not really focused on the bottom line. But then as you shift gradually, it's like, you know, operating income growth is really going to take off because it's a software business, right? Zoom kind of gave you both of that at the same time. So like, you can't sit out here and be like, Zoom's going to have a huge multiple expansion, you know, on the bottom line. So it's not like something that you're looking like, you almost have to be like reasonable by valuing it today, you know, on like kind of more mature EV EBITDA multiples, more traditional valuation metrics, put it that way, right? You because you, because of it, you, you're you're saying that they've already their model sort of has the inherent operating leverage. They don't really have like some magic. Well, they had that. They, I mean, they completely didn't have to spend anything on marketing, right? And sales, and really worry about almost anything competitively over the last twelve months right? It was essentially make as much money as you possibly can because your product is in demand. Which unwinds I mean, a little it's bit. Like, it's, like, it's like selling masks or vaccines. Right. I mean, yeah, there was free alternatives, but like they just were not there from a, 
let's call it, I mean, in some cases they, they were, but overall, usability standpoint. And like these guys started out, you know, they had a premium model, right? So like, you can't argue with that either. But like, I look at Zoom and I say, what's it going to look like in 2022? And I honestly haven't given like, I mean, I haven't seen anything of all the people who said to buy Zoom, let's say below 3.30. I haven't seen one like proper take on what this thing looks like in 2022. Like, does it, does it notably grow? Is it going to do an acquisition? Like, I mean, it's being modeled roughly for like 10 to 15% revenue growth. That's half of what you'd be like kind of expecting out of PagerDuty right now. At what, nine times sales? Yeah, the, the estimates I looked at have them still at $4 billion for this year. And then, which I didn't pull up their guidance, but $4 bill for this year. And then I saw 4.79, so almost 20% for next year. But yeah, it's uh, obviously, I, they do seem to be... And it could just be what we talk about as far as annual subscriptions that they're just kind of getting the catch up as instead of a new sale being only two months, it's four months. But they do seem to be, if you're modeling in 50% growth this year, that's not a not a bad follow-up to the 400% growth last year or whatever it was. But yeah, that, so that's where 300 or 400%, but that's where... That's the numbers I saw. But yeah, I mean, it's obviously a steep drop off. The multiples are, I think, loosely, if you give them some, it's still over 20 times revenue for fiscal 23, which is basically calendar 22. So, and your point is that there's just not a lot. No, no, my point, look, my point is very simple. The company is going to like, if you model this out right now, I think it's about 12 to 13%. Like I modeled this at 4.1 to 4.2 billion six months ago for this year. So like where they've come in, I think many people have looked at it, they've done a pretty good job. Like this, this, this company has not exactly been a hard one to model right now. Like I, despite the fact that it's been, you know, such a torrid grower uh, over, let's call it, the back half of last year, I guess you could have said there have been anticip- like you could have anticipated COVID rolling off and when it didn't, but they've definitely lost a huge amount of momentum. But to the point where you look at this business for this year, you're modeling flattish billings growth, right? By the end of the year to negative. Okay. So like, that's very, very common sense stuff here. Acquisitions aside, like that's how like this, this company is being modeled internally at the company with, with the boost that they're going to give you, you know, to be able to take their guided stuff step by step throughout the year. So you can see that it's being modeled that way by them. So that really just brings you to the question of what does next year look like? And like the consensus has kind of gravitated around the company grows the top line in the 10 to 15% range from where like that year-end exit is going to be, right? If you're looking at 4.1 to 4.2. So like that essentially, if, you, if you're going to grow subscription revenue at that, exiting on a year where you grew 50%, essentially speaking, on your top line, that's very, very, very low billings growth. So like, I mean, you saw, for example, I mean, I had a guy who was giving me a, a hard time on the noisiness that is pager duties to, you know, to either or quarters on billings. So like, 
they had, you know, 11 and a half, 12% billings growth this past quarter. And, you know, they're like, look at us on a trailing basis and this, this, and that, because, well, you know, where their billings fall, you know, you, you're like, you're, you're going from mid thirties to low teens to mid thirties to low teens has been like, what's been going on the last couple of quarters and the trailing being, you know, mid to high twenties. Right. But like, I'm looking at a, at, at a page of duty as like, you know, I, I, I expect them to be able to maintain, you know, 20% plus billings growth for at least 24 months. Right. If I'm buying a stock like that at around 10 times sales. So when I look at, when I look at zoom, because I look at that company, I say, well, down the road, you know, you can get, you're going to get margin expansion. You're, you're overspending on a sales force. You're not getting the scale, for example, like, like a Zoom gets that flows to the bottom line. Zoom doesn't have to have the, the same type of enterprise footprint relative to revenue because, I mean, it's a $4 billion business. So when you think about that and you consider what Zoom could look like, right, versus let's say a PD at the end of this year, right, you're not going to be sitting here being like, yes, yeah, Zoom's margins are going to expand. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a operating margin expansion story, right? No, like the question is going to become like, how do you look at this for the next five years? You've seen people get into the whole second act obsession over everything, right? Like, isn't that what's Netflix going to do? What's so-and-so going to do? You know, what's the next thing for Apple, right? Like this, this stock hundred percent is in that category because you've really, really, really penetrated your core market. Well, and that's, you haven't mentioned yet, the. Still lingering question, I think that, look, I, I think Zoom's performance has been, and their guidance is pretty strong, but the questions are still around as we get, and it's really probably going to be the next school year is the way to think about it, but in the business world as well, do people start dropping off as people in the West at least go back to a more or less open economy as offices figure out whether they're hybrid or fully in the office as schools go back to school. And I know that Zoom gave a lot of free subscriptions, but nevertheless, I think there's potential noise in their numbers that we're not talking about before. America hates remote learning. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I think from a political standpoint, yeah, I mean, America is, I mean, by the way, for our listeners, America, people watching, America is opening, I think, faster than at like, you hear the controversy about the controversy in the UK over, they're still the making. Delta variant? Well, and that they're just making it so difficult for people to go to visit Spain, for example, if either, like, which is, there's the one side of it, which is all of those, you know, tourists don't be selfish, but then I see actually quite a lot of people who are quite not in the finance world and quite, you know, fairly left is my interpretation, but we're like, look, I need to visit my family and you're making it a huge pain in the ass for me to go visit my family. And there, yeah, the UK is still like requiring quarantines if you go back. And so in the US, I mean, we talked about last time, but it seems I saw New York is open and like, it seems like pretty much everywhere's open cases are still on the right direction and you know let's hope that that continues but so you know him here in spain by the way like things are 
there are still a few last things that are, and you're still required to wear masks pretty much everywhere. But so yeah, anyway, I digress. The, the virtual, that's true, the virtual. I think the U.S. actually leaned on virtual learning more than other countries too, at least other Western countries. But yeah, I think kids are going to be back Look, in I mean, school. And simplify it. Like this is a company that went from like an 800 million revenue business to a 4 billion revenue business under the pandemic. Okay. I mean, when you think about what I was debating around it, when I was buying it and I was like, they can do 1.2 billion, you know, next year and get to 2 billion run rate by roughly this time. That was like the way I was thinking about this business before COVID. And like that was what you had to back into buying the stock. You could be confident buying the stock in the in the seventies, right? Without thinking. So instead, I mean, like it went from a hundred, you know, to let's call it where is it now? Like you know, three fifty, three sixty, and the business five x and did it very, 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 very profitably. So what happens next is like is what you're looking at. And it's not just next year, right? Like you got to look at these businesses for several years. And that's where you get into these challenges around a name like Zoom. Like what type of investor base does it churn through in the next year? Which is what I think people underestimate when they look at it and they say, you know what? It's going to grow single digits to high teens. Well, you've seen what type of people buy single-digit IT and growth stocks. It's you find yourself in the category debating, uh, you know, the pager duties of the world, where it's like that's what you're going to end up with. I don't want to own this, and that's like, you know, a le- that should be less than ten times sales. So let me use that then to go. Let, let's let's jump over to pager duty to them because we it, we're using that as a proxy. Pager duty now with this growth trade is basically back at their pre-earnings highs. They're in the low 40s, 42 as I'm looking Yeah, there's a perfect example. The stock went from 42 to 34. Again, for 24 hours, people were like, hey, this thing's got problems. And I was like, dude, my exact comments, by the way, to two people on DM was like, have you been watching SAS? You know, give it five days. (laughs) Yeah. You know, like give it five days before you have an earnings reaction to the news that like fits your narrative of that day because yeah. i had the conversation i got two comments i got the billings growth customer growth was this supposedly disappointing the billings growth disappointing lowest deferred revenue growth since it was a public company i was like well last quarter was the highest right so like that's the problem with a stock like that you have like you have to actually look at it and be like this and we just went through this two quarters ago and one of these guys the same guy bringing up the same thing to me you know and yeah. at the same time, he's pitching me a high multiple name, you know, that's like, let's call it on the on the infrastructure side at over 20, 20 25 times sales. So was there anything, you sound like you're pretty happy with the quarter just as an observer of and somebody who's followed it really closely. I, I will quickly note. I mean, Daniel, how many times have we talked about this name? Not much changes in like 60 days. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess I was going to say, did anything surprise you? Did anything no. catch your eye? No. No, just like the, the consistent bickering that occurs around this name every time it reports earnings. It seems to be like one of those names that is like not allowed to report earnings and just pop 25% and everybody celebrate. Well, they had that one. I've, it was either Q3 or yes, Q4 they, they had. They had, they had that one quarter where you got that kind of reaction. 
and even then it was like i mean like it's in the category of twitter where you're just like more 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 or less there's like you know you, you do wonder whether it just becomes programmatic and like they're they're leaned on into selling into these selling into the reports and then buying them after I, I what I was going to say that they did they have seen real multiple expansion since pre-pandemic they were but also pre-pandemic was kind of that was when you were really pounding the table on them as they were really still sort of shaking off the post IPO druthers and so it's not yeah, a I mean, it was comparison. a fantastic buy below 20 I mean like where I pitched it so like from $22 you know down to 13 Right. I mean, COVID, you know, COVID created that temporary window, but let's just say like that and Slack in the low, low 20s to high teens were great opportunities. Now, there was a bunch of other names later on that ended up being also good opportunities as well. But like, you know, these were whatever you want to call it, like backing into a transition value SaaS, right? Not problematic, but being treated that way. So it's not like a box or a drop box. <laughs> You know, both of which have expanded multiple wise. They have, they yeah. have. Notably, but like, you know, getting those names at, at the multiples that they were at, still growing the rate that they were growing is the difference. So when you can buy something growing 30% or, I mean, in I mean Slack's case, you know, 40 plus, I'd say it was unique, unique setups for those names. I mean, it's, it's kind of similar to what like Zoom, Zoom trading down to like 17 times sales. Uh, November of 19 when like you know like I don't like buying the high multiple names but I'll, I will buy them when they're growing almost triple digits zoom at 17x coming off like a 90% top line growth year right like I don't have to think too hard about what I'm paying on next year if I still like the momentum in the business that's where you actually have the exact opposite here I think page duty had an added complication because there's a lot going on in Atlassian lately where they're kind of restructuring certain things. And uh, there's been an argument that they're making, a, you know, is Atlassian going to make a more concerted push? And like the whole debate over incident response being a feature in a, in a, in, in, in a broader, broader tech stack. By the way, interesting news, which I didn't notice, which was brought to my attention yesterday, was that Everbridge bought X Matters. Hmm. What's X Matters? I don't remember us talking about that. X Matters is like... Uh, a standalone alerting and you know business response provider. So if you look at the market before the alerting side, you had PagerDuty, and then you had two startups, OpsGenie and Victor uh, and VictorOps, with their solutions, which were both acquired, you know, in the, in the year before PagerDuty's IPO. And then you had kind of these like kind of legacy guys who've been around in the space who had solutions. And one was X Matters and one was Everbridge. So Everbridge, both not viewed well on the alerting side, particularly from tech, right? I mean, if you go back to my write-up on uh, where I turned PageAnuity around, like I, I talked to one or two customers that had left X Matters for PageAnuity and they were also leaving X Matters on business response. And of course, like nobody really had had very good things to say about, about Everbridge's alerting product. So like, just like it's another sign of, and if you want to go back to the Viva case, uh, consolidation in the legacy end being good for the incumbent growth leader. But I mean, yeah, that, that kind of that, that kind of caught my eye because those guys keep buying revenue growth to try to stay over 
and maintain kind of like that financial model they've got in the street too. Which, as you've seen, by the way, from a stock price management standpoint, can work very well. I mean, it's worked for Everbridge well. I mean, it's, it's something that, that Twilio has executed well on. If you know when to do your acquisitions, which is why I was wondering whether Zoom will do anything. Well, I would like to say bienvenidos en Dobrodošli to Elliott Management for joining Dropbox as a reported 10% shareholder. And maybe that will, maybe that's the, X plus Y that we're talking about here, who needs a good cloud file storage management system to boost that boost that revenue. I mean, for... it's not a bad idea. Like if you <laughs> like I can think of worse ideas, but it's no longer like a drop in the well deal. Yeah, yeah, drop yeah. No, I mean and Dropbox has picked up revenue or picked up the share price has picked up. They've made a couple purchases, but we don't, we don't need to go into Dropbox. Yeah. But I mean, like if you could, like if, if Zoom had offered $30 a share in, in stock a little while ago, I think uh, that deal would have gotten done. Yeah. I think 30 has always been sort of the, the threshold where for a long time, a Dropbox shareholder would have maybe grumbled, but would have accepted. And I think Houston would have as well move into Austin or whatever he's doing. But yeah, for now, They've, they've kind of gotten there on their own. And so that makes it, it'll be interesting to see what happens there. They're, they're doing a real job as far as buying share. Like they're just managing it like a cash cow, which for a SaaS company is unusual, but they may be able to pull it off. Last name to hit is a name that you pitched earlier in the year as a return to work post-COVID sort of SaaS play, which is Workday, and which is, you know, not quite Salesforce, but towards Salesforce as far as incumbency in the SaaS sector. They kind of also traded off a tiny bit after earnings. They're, it looks like they're more or less right back to where they were before again. And I don't think we've really discussed Workday at length on the podcast. So what did you make of their quarter? What are you? Like- I mean, like you know, it was it was good. I'd say from a narrative standpoint, it was strong. I think, but like little evidence of a notable acceleration yet. There was a few calls being made before I reported on like a, a notable pickup. I mean, if you remember when they reported, also Anaplan got really nicked as well on the planning side, which we'll be more excited about. I mean, again, this is one of these things where it's really hard to kind of gauge these things because like the price reactions to these names has not really been very tethered with what what you're managing from a result standpoint. It was a good quarter. Like, I think you can still buy into the argument that Workday grows faster next year than it does this year. And like PagerDuty grows faster than it did, you know, roughly speaking, these are arguments that like, I don't think you can apply to let's call it six out of 10 names in the sector. With pager duty, we know the story is that sort of second derivative play. They also have physical goods economy companies that use them. And so that they're going to be levered to that as much as they were to SAS. And so they have the end Jen Tejada dropped the idea of we think we can get to 30% plus growth in the coming years, which was kind of a bold statement. 
And so that's the story there with Workday HR software, unemployment decreasing, I guess, is really the lever. But like, what is it that makes them? No, I mean, Workday has to start really winning some meaningful share in financials, right? And like, that's where they continue to sell that story. And they're talking about like, you know, the CFO suite really being pulled in, you know, like it's the last, I mean, core financials really is like, you know, when we discussed this, like the last on-prem dominated business function in enterprise software. So when so we're like, talking you core financials, like, you don't mean you don't mean the end market of banks, you mean the the finance you know, department. The core, the core finance, yes, the core finance department software for large enterprise, you know, your Oracle SAP type stuff and getting them to switch like the, the backbone of the uh, of the reporting into something like Workday, which is like, you know, they're going to win their meaningful share, put it that way. Like, do they do better? I mean, the bottom line is, is it's a very large stand that's migrating and like it's, there's enough for everybody to eat. If you believe the argument that over the next two to three years, because everything else got digitized so quickly that that now finally has to move because it talks better to everything else once you migrate it. So, I mean, like that kind of like, that's like, that's a core thesis there. Like you're not paying too much for it. I mean, when you look at where some of these names are trading, like, you know, you kind of, you got to view it like Salesforce was probably a cheaper way to play this. If you wanted SaaS in, the, in this type of category, I think Workday is the more interesting one. So, I mean, like if you're looking at 2022 and we discussed this before, like what names can you own in software where maybe if there's a growth hangover in what has been really, really popular post-COVID, like do you come out ahead? And these are like, we've suggested these three names or, I mean, Salesforce is why I'd say one, which were like, well, like you have to have certain characteristics, right? Like, I want to be paying less than 15 times sales. I want potentially more than 20% growth. And I want some sort of tailwind in my underlying market after the pandemic. And those, those three names fall into that category for me. Zoom is the far other end of the extreme, right? Like Zoom is like, okay, I'm going to grow way slower. I was as profitable as ever. I'm going to have more competition than ever, right? I've penetrated my TAM faster than you could have imagined. I got to find something else. You know, a good analog is the Viva story, right? Like there was somebody who was complaining about, about the customers. PagerDuty didn't add that many paying customers. And I'm like, I mean, this business makes money off of an ARPU per seat and a seat being, you know, a human who is at the end of the day being tied to some incidents response notification alerting slash reporting monitoring you know tie-in that is being provided by PageDuty, maybe at some degree of analytics etc so like it requires penetrating the companies with the most employees who want to put their employees all on call right and that means i need the bodies the warm bodies in those companies you know, like a like an Apple at twenty thousand or IBM at twenty thousand, right? Seats, and that's the way you got to look at it. And when you look at it from that standpoint, there's a handful of customers that move the needle. It's, this is not about this is not Twilio, right? Where we have two hundred thousand customers, okay? 
and we're doing 1.6, 1.7 billion in revenue, and you throw out that huge customer number. Like when these guys throw out 12, 13,000 customers, like, you know, it's less than a thousand customers that matter. I mean, a, a great example is I was actually like, I posted, I don't know if you saw, like somebody, the guy, the Saster guy, uh, Jason Lemkin. Lemkin. Yeah. I tweeted like a thread about Viva and it was like a thousand customers at, at an average revenue of 2 million per customer. And I'm like, that's, that's such a bad thing to write. You know, <laughs> it's because I know for a fact that like the top 10 or 40%, top 10 customers. And I know that like the top 20 is like around 60, right? Maybe a little bit more. Okay. So like 2% of my customers are 60% of my revenue. The other 90%, 98%, okay, of my customers are 40% of my revenue. So when I look at like, I don't know where, 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 where PageDuty is today on seats, but like, let's say, you know, somewhere between 500 and 600,000, you can probably find in, in the TAM of the S&P 500 for the Fortune 500, 10 companies that can get you to 200,000. It's interesting just to think about which is worth a higher multiple or which is a better business to, to run. Like there are definitely different strategies and business needs. In PagerDuty's case, it makes so much sense because that metaphor you kept coming back to the fire alarm. If you've got the best fire alarm, why bother trying to, you know, people will come to you, but if you can sell it to the best and the biggest and well, I mean, that's, that's, it's look at Viva. Viva has not done, you know, more than expected in, in the core Salesforce function than you would have expected since they IPO'd, right? But that market has not even expanded. It's actually still shrinking. Okay. They've like actually just warned again about, you know, cutbacks and pharma uh, hitting that market. But what they did is they took that market, which has, let's call it 20 really notable paying customers. Okay. And in that market, they went and they sold them another product in the terms of Vault, which at the time the IPO had literally negligible revenue. We're talking less, less than $5 million. The Vault business today is bigger than the CRM business. Now, you couldn't have bought that business under that assumption at that time because there was really a nascent product with no customers. You had one that was doing great, but it's like, hey, we're going to buy, like, you have to assume they're going to buy a completely unrelated product. By the way, not built on salesforce.com. Just had to be really good on its own because you got into the position you were in in pharma and 20 customers. And once you were in with those 20 customers, you were able to cross sell them something else. And being at the right place at the right time to do that with what happened with Documentum, okay? And like something that had been legacy for 20 years and now became an orphan as it was being spun out of EMC and sold to somebody else. So when you look at PagerDuty, for someone to nick it and be like, hey, they had a very weak customer ad quarter. And it's like, look, this is not like, this is not a company right now where you're like, you know, at 13,000 customers, I'm like, I'm going to be sitting here having a conversation with you about who are they adding? That's like a major new logo. Actually, well, you could say it's more about how you penetrate an existing logo than it is winning new logos. Because what size of business, what size of a business is going to really need, what do you want to call it? And like a very robust 
state-of-the-art learning system. It's right. a mature business. It's just right. the same way when you look at when you yeah. yes, and then when you look at pharma, for example, who's selling drugs? The big right, the, the, the giant yeah, companies. The companies yeah. with sales forces, right? Development stage biotechs don't buy customer relationship management software, right? And even ones with like a teeny little drug will have a small little sales force. They're not going to need to spend on the highest customized tech CRM that big pharma does with 30, 40,000 armies globally of people selling, selling drugs. So I think that this, like, this is where you look at something like Salesforce, like, look, sorry, not Salesforce, PagerDuty, where it's like, look, they win 20,000 seats at Apple. You know, do they get 20,000 seats at Starbucks? Can they get 10,000 more seats at this company? And like progressively, as you go through, you know, the Fortune 500, like they tell you they have 60% in the Fortune 100. You ask yourself, all right, dollar wise, like what's the degree of penetration? It's a wide gap. So they have a ton of room to grow in those companies. That's what you're trying to do. That's why you have to have the enterprise sales guys working directly with these customers, right? At these large orgs, where you're like the same way Snowflake is spending a ton of money on sales. These guys need to spend a ton of money on sales because that's how you sell in that customer base. Now, when it's something that's consumed by like a startup with like seven employees, you know, to 10 employees, and they could choose between free ops genie and free page duty. Well, I mean, then you move by page duty. like, you know what? Let's just make it so that's irrelevant. So like at, at that customer count, it is free. And we saw what we saw how that how that factor demo before used to be, hey, okay, maybe I'll take the ops genie. So like, but like, you know, there is a certain clientele when you look at like a Twilio with tools to support, you know, a creator or someone who wants to mass market, right? That TAM is a very different, like you can have hundreds of thousands of customers. And so when you go to a workday, which is selling into the finance office, that's a similarly, you don't want to rip stuff out in the finance department. Like you want to do it, they're, they're not to be with all due respect to friends I've had in finance departments, but they're not super tech savvy and they're also very process oriented and they don't, they're dealing with the money. They don't want to mess stuff up. And so if your work day, it's a similar, you're trying to land companies that are growing, adding employees, whatever. And you're trying to, it's, it's less of the story about this sort of what you're sort of setting up is that a lot of the COVID winners were companies that really were accessible and easy go-to-market strategies that were usage-based in Twilio's case or very quick freemium to prosumer in Zoom's case. And now companies that have a more enterprise orientation, and that's page duty was kind of steady Eddie either way, but then a workday also steady, but they have exposure to that sort of enterprise revenge of the enterprise and they that's what sets them up for a 2022 that is stronger even than 2021. Is that sort of the I mean, you can call it revenge of the enterprise and you can just say, yeah, they were lower priority tools in, in 2020 and into 2021. And from a digital digitization standpoint, like whether you're, you're page or duty, who's like kind of riding on top of the complexity increasing and your digitization in general increasing, or whether you're like workday sitting with the CFO office, which has been kind of last priority. And now is like, in some organizations, maybe like the last big project that needs to be moved to cloud, 
you're in a you're in a better position than anyone who was tied to COVID. I mean, part of part of the COVID winners is going to work itself off. Like you pointed out, what percentage of people don't use remote learning? Like what's where did the intensity scale down on some of these things next year? And like, what can be, what can you get by with, with your broader suite, right? Like that's been the argument around Microsoft and Slack, right? So like, if you were on Zoom, but you have Microsoft Office and like now you're, you're barely doing it. Like if everybody gets, like one of the big things I was pointing out recently was Google doing really well on, uh, with me, even though some people, you know, still hate it, but like some people actually are, you know, very big fans. So if you look at these two, Said, like these are the types of things where it's like you're gonna have debates for the next 18 months around these companies. They have headwinds that are just so visible. And right now, like it seems to be like they're just they're, they're popular names to trade. There's a we've seen a lot of stuff on the infrastructure stuff tied to the internet that's been like in the news, right? Like Fastly, Cloudflare, the Akamai today or yesterday, you know, some CDN outages and websites being down well like that's been a focus of the last 18 to 24 months i think a docusign is one that's an interesting one that's like in between right where it just seems to win it seems to win in either dynamic but other than that i don't know it's uh i mean do you have a view uh, i would ask you this question like do you think that there is a potential like we, we call it like a growth hangover but like why wouldn't why wouldn't anything that you're looking at come like, you know, the first two quarter, the first half of next year, look, barring a few businesses, meager compared to what we've seen. There's, yeah, I think in the, in the sort of COVID winter space, well, I'll, I'll give you an example of a COVID winner that I'm sort of restudying. And I actually picked up a handful of shares just because I had done some work, but I still need to do a lot more work. This is a little particular, but I own... Thor, which is one of the RV makers. And that's an obvious COVID winner. The CEO just went on Kramer's show and talked about how they've basically sold out through 20, through next year, I think he said. They've got a huge backlog. And that's that's an example of, there was some weird dynamics because they were just coming out of a restocking down cycle going into 2020, basically. So they would have been starting to rebound. Then they you couldn't produce or sell at the beginning of the year. And then the backlog builds as everybody wants to get traveling safely, et cetera. And so now they've got this huge backlog. And, you know, and we know that there's a bit of a campers worldwide is the one that gets more or warehouse, whatever, camping world holding holdings is the big battleground, but it's a similar story. It's like a lot of people are skeptical because like who really wants RVing like kind of sucks and it's still an immature business. I think it's like one of these mom and pop things that just is kind of rolled up into a few names and you go on RV forums and people say, yeah, the RVs are always shittily built and it's like a weird little industry. But at the same time, there's a normal cycle underneath all of this. And then there is like, you're going to get some of these people to really enjoy RVing and be lifers. And so you've expanded your normal market in some degree, but yeah, you have to have a, for me to, I bought shares before the pandemic, but held on to most of them, sold some of them in the high, like 
in the low hundreds and then in the 125 range, it's now back down to the low hundreds. And at this point, it's you're trying I'm trying to sort out like, okay, well, what is once they sell out their backlog, like what is normal look like? And I haven't done enough work yet to have a view. But yeah, it, my mindset is sort of a mean reversionist, which is what makes me a value investor. So it's hard for me to see like how we don't have a growth hangover in a lot of places. And at the same time, you look at a yeah, zoom. So it's, it's a question of like whether or not there's a, there's a hangover tied to human behavior in the market, right? Yeah. Is, yeah. is, this, a, is, this, is this the type of market that these people like, like that you, these types of, let's call it, the mix of investors tied to like the policy and tied to the returns of the last year is the only way that this plays out that you kind of have to wake up and just like not be getting, uh, not getting excited about the, the headline prints. Well, because look, I, because for, for a lot of names, like software, like I, I, you can't look at like Zoom, okay, and say that if it grew 10% or 15%, if it was freaking flat, okay, next year, that, that would be a bad thing. I mean, it's a good thing <laughs> to go from a $500 million business to a four to $5 billion business in 24 months. If the next four or five years is, let's call it subpar relative to the industry averages, that's not a, that's not a disappointment. And I'm talking about like the rate other businesses that are considered growth businesses grow. Because when you grow that fast, you penetrate really quickly, which becomes much harder you know, to replicate. You got to find a second act that has to be immensely successful. I mean, whether it's Zoom phone, call center, whatever that you're focusing on, that's really what you need to be able to sell to the market. Because unfortunately, when you become a $100 billion company <laughs> overnight, that's how you're going to be measured. It's a question of like, do you have a group of investors who wake up and look at it that way? Now, the, the downside risk is that turns out maybe you're a one-trick pony. And I mean, that does happen occasionally. Yeah, and I think the investing, the investor psychology is going to be interesting to watch because we've talked a ton about how a lot of new investors have come on who only trade SPACs and crypto and SaaS or whatever it is, like I alluded to earlier. And I mentioned last week that a high school friend reached out and we had a call and he's interested in the market and he's reading Motley Fool. And he's like, I've got 21 stocks and there's and it's Melly and it's Datadog and it's whatever. Yeah, like, I mean, we, we know, you, you know the names. Yeah, like, it's all the, all those names. And it's like, okay, like that's, and I don't, I, he wants to, he's trying to get another one of our friends into a group and he wants to like set up regular calls. And I'm just, I'm going to be curious to see like, all right, it, it, like how can we think about diversification and how can we think about not being exposed to just, the same sorts of stocks. He, he got really excited because I told, told him about a dredging company I own. So that was at least like, all right, there's other stuff out there. But yeah, it, it's like, it'll be, and like you said, with the example of what you're hearing on Twitter, like everybody's talking about AMD or Amazon or as if that's the whole world, is that it's it's hard to, because so many other stocks are still up, maybe not 100%, but still up meaningfully. It's not it's not like you can say that things are cheap in other areas, but yeah, it's it's hard to 
imagine uh, who knows maybe the fed the fed is staying staying off the breaks and maybe things just keep floating higher i don't know it's hard to that's my point so like there's like you can have monetary policy be extremely accommodative and it'd be very destructive for stock prices right i mean a strengthening economy and rising rates like it wasn't a problem for growth stocks you know from 2000 end of 2015 to september of 2018 i mean there was a hit you had a drawdown at the end of 18 but like it wasn't like you had a drawdown back to uh, uh levels of two years ago right you know i mean there was a couple names that really really got overheated but i mean amazon quadrupled you know and you gave back 35 percent. yeah that's about right so like when you look at that type of when you i mean like that should have been viewed as no big deal and certain people will come in and buy these stocks. I think almost any name that got hit hard, particularly on the financial side of things and like the old economy stuff, you had an opportunity to come in and get them. And by the way, if you had not, if you had not gone to that next level, you would have like a lot of these other businesses that have kind of hung around that are not going to be going away anytime soon, like an AMC or a Bed Bath & Beyond or like consolidation that may have happened or things that may have changed pre-COVID, like that wouldn't have happened. And it would have been a better environment to continually belong these digitization trades. If you wanted to look at it and say, hey, like I wanted to belong, you know, Atlassian and, and Zoom and and these types of names for the, the next decade, you had a very compelling case there if like things kind of played themselves out the way they were playing them out. But like enter COVID and if you're looking at a Zoom, like you got your best case outcome for a Zoom right over the next 10 years you got it in what 18 months even less you got it in like 12 months like that's the type of thing you got to consider when we go into next year is that like is there a bunch of stocks that the first hiccup that occurs changes the entire way the people who are investing in them behave like what causes people in those names to go look for something else because as of right now, it would appear to be nothing. Because like you said, it's the same portfolio. It's Melly, it's Shopify, you know, it's C, it's Datadog, you know, DocuSign, Zoom, Amazon, Shopify, Roku. You, you, you know what people are going to wake up and buy Twilio. And it's like, we'll buy all these names at the same time and exit all these names at the same time. I do, I do believe that if there's any risk to 2022, and from here on out, it doesn't seem, you know, appreciated. It's that you can you could definitely have like a growth hangover that's much more notable in these names that that like really benefited. Because I don't think anyone's really communicated very clearly potential risk of the back half of the year. We were talking about this in the gaming space, for example. And I was like, hey, plus three percent growth is like being viewed as a positive for May versus COVID. And I'm like, yeah, but you had, you had new consoles all last year. I mean, like you had to switch on fire. Like you still kind of got shortages. So you got pent up demand that's kind of been spread out a little bit. What do you got? Like, what's going to be the argument if like, you know, like you start printing down 10% or 15% in like September or October, 
is it going to be like, oh, that's not that bad? Or is that going to be like, hey, like, uh, you know, we're not growing? Yeah. It's just a question of if and when that comes, right? Because we sort of thought maybe the beginning of this year, but then with the re re spike in cases in January, Q1 was still sort of a big COVID month. Now we've got Q2, we've got the summer coming up. We've got, I mean, I guess, and that's maybe the last question you would, you would described this as sort of a time to go on vacation, let the kids manage the portfolio and come back refreshed. I assume you're still in that sort of mindset. It's still a sort of way. Like you should, like that was how you would look at the summer. I mean, if you were running any meaningful portfolio, I would think that'd be the case. Like, I don't really think much happens in the summer, to tell you the truth. I mean, maybe by August, you can start really thinking about it. But I think you have another round of earnings that essentially look the same. Maybe you may get one or two companies who are willing to come out and be like, hmm, we would like to condition you to a little bit different, you know, environment next year. But I don't think, I think it's like, if, if, if history's taught me anything, management teams just don't do that. So... It's just not the business that they're in is is ever predicting to slow down, which is why it's kind of pointless <laughs> to take their to take their their narrative on guidance remotely <laughs> remotely useful because they will. I'm like I can't think of a time where they just come out and they tell you that the, the hiccup is coming. Yeah, even when even when it's been patently obvious and like it was in their interest to just kind of communicate it they'd rather just let it happen again same as the fed rather have to exactly have to hike when they aren't ready than tell you it's coming yeah and that's essentially become their policy i mean if you look at that balance sheet today there's really not much you can do to to undo it like what are you gonna like you're, are you ever gonna like can you can you ever remove what you bought in covid no you can't <laughs> it's, it's probably never happening yeah Flat, flat is the new taper. That's correct. That's basically the best way of looking at it. Like if if they're flat for a period, every single time it grows, it's you know it's permanently grown. It's just like a a mild to severe devaluation. Yeah, which it seems to be has to be done to some degree to offset certain deflation that comes out of technology. Yeah, I mean, again, we're now we're now we're getting into deep economic effects all right let's 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 stop it there but all right good stuff all right take care thank you for listening to the razor's edge subscribe to this wherever you get your podcasts hit us up on twitter at at daniel shortman and at akram's razor with suggestions requests or anything else we aim to publish this every tuesday morning and love to hear from you If you can share this with a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd really be grateful as that will help the podcast grow and improve. This has been a Short Man Studios production. Our theme song is Move On by Soquel. Thank you for listening and see you next week.